born in St. Louis, Missouri. Grew up in Connecticut. It's two L's, right? It's a double L and an I. Do you ever get the one L? Is there any way to know Allison with two L's versus one L? It's a slightly longer Allison, you know, as opposed to Allison, which would be faster, and that's the one L. It's a slight, it's subtle, but it's noticeable if you're in the know. And uh, even on emails, I get a lot of 1L Allisons, and it always um, indicates to me that I don't need to respond to that email. <laughs> it's not for me. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it says even at the top how to spell it with 2Ls, and I always sign off with 2Ls, but some people don't. I think they, maybe they're doing it on purpose. It's a good litmus test. Great litmus test. And then if I ever get called out for not responding, it's like, oh, no, that wasn't for me. I'm with 2Ls. <laughs> Is this where you'd like to be in your life? And is this what you'd like to be doing? How'd you get here? And where do you hope to go in the future? Most importantly, how are things right now? And what have you learned along the way? This is Bill Ehrlich. Is now a good time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy now looking back on things and trying to find patterns or reasons for doing things and looking back on my old notebooks or stories I wrote in school and finding patterns like now looking back it's easier but at the time I don't think it was headed in any certain direction it's just a lot of everything like doing as much as I can so when you were graduating you had no money you had no job what kind of stuff were you what kind of stuff were you looking for because it's it can be hard so you're like applying to places but you don't really know what they do there I knew I wanted to go to New York. I graduated without the job, without any jobs, so I moved home. I got an internship for the summer in Connecticut, uh, you know, and still lived at home. What was what was that? So it was working as an intern for a publishing company, which I'm just gonna be honest here. My dad also worked at the company. As as much as you might not want to say it, that's how most people get jobs. Oh, I know. I'm not, it's, it's not embarrassing. It's just, yeah. Like, it's not like he gave you some cushy position. You were an intern. But it was good. It, it was good because then I had structure. Obviously, it was an internship, so I knew it was going to end. So I kept applying in New York and hoping that something would work out there. Knowing that you wanted to be in New York is something, though. Because knowing place is, if not as valuable, it's a piece of it. Where even if you don't know what you want to do, if you know where you want to be, that that can then be guiding. Right. So. And motivating. It's motivating, but I also was applying to places in other cities. Okay. So I'd say the common threads were I wanted to be in New York and or I wanted to work in finance for a fashion company. And I ended up finding something in New York finally right around my birthday. So that's September 15th after the summer after graduation. Uh, so you were an intern for the summer, mm-hmm. and then you found what in New York? I was starting out, I don't even remember the name of like what the position was, but it was for a private concierge service in Manhattan called Insider, and it was basically a small boutique company that did anything and everything for clients, usually well-off clients corporations and yeah I just got knew how to how to get things done so anything from restaurant reservations or planning trips for people to uh, like 
last minute errands or long-term research projects, really anything legal. And yeah, I started out as entry level there and was assisting some of the account managers. So all the, you know, the older girls had, first of all, I was only girls working out of an apartment and it was awesome. It was really fast paced. And yeah, I was supporting some of the account managers and then eventually worked my way up to be an account manager. And you just did a lot of everything. That was probably a great experience. It's an amazing experience because more so than in college, I was able to learn people skills and problem solving skills. Like I said, just figuring out how to get things done, especially on really tight deadlines because everything people needed, they needed it the day before or in an hour or something. So It's funny because a personal concierge service doesn't sound on the surface like it would be this really worthwhile experience for all future work that you're going to be doing. But after you describe it, it's like, oh, that's every job. Right, and I think that that when I was there after I'd been there for a while um I knew I I really appreciated the amount of experience I was getting and the amount of autonomy I had and I also was worried about how do I transition this to the next role because I think that after over a year and a half I just wanted to do something different and I was really nervous like what there's no next step right to that type of job unless you wanted to go to a competitor which I didn't So I remember like worrying for a while about how do I, how do I best explain this experience in a way that someone will understand how valuable it was. Like I knew it was personally, but I wasn't sure if it would come across that way in an interview or. You mentioned that you're applying before this position to finance jobs at fashion companies. Why fashion and what's your interest there? That was always my hobby. It was like on the side But I started to get overwhelmed because then I look at things and I'd say like, well, I don't need to buy that because I could just make that myself. And I would sort of add it to a list, either literally a list or mentally a list of things like that one day I'm going to make when I just figure out timing. You know, it's like I had this running list, years worth of things that I wanted to make. And I knew if I just set time aside or put myself uh, to the challenge, I'd be able to figure out how to do it. But the fact of the matter is I wasn't doing it like I either couldn't find the time where I wasn't making the time to do it. So what was really cool, I'd say in the last few months, and I don't I can't pinpoint exactly when or why or how I figured this out, but it's like this, this realization. And I'm sure people that I know and love have been telling me this for years and I just wasn't listening, but like, or I, it wasn't, it was kind of in one ear at the other. Um, But yeah, realizing that you don't have to make everything or do everything yourself. And in fact, like there are other people who do specialize in that or want to do it and you could partner up or collaborate or you could pay someone to do something and um, it, you know, it doesn't feel like you're selling out by doing that or giving up. It's like you still get what you want in the end. Internally, what happens when you open up to that? Like, what is the wall that gets broken down? Is it, like, mental? Is it ideological? What is that shift? I think the biggest shift that led to was instead of being frustrated about all the things that I wanted to do that I wasn't doing, I started focusing on what I could what I could do with the skills and the tools that I had and then reaching out to other people to fill in the pieces. So all of a sudden, instead of feeling overwhelmed by the amount of things I wanted to get done, I could just narrow it down 
to say like one thing I really wanted to get done and I don't need to do it all myself. So who can I turn to, to help get that done? How important do you think it is to narrow down that list for other people who are trying to, to pursue things or make things or narrowing the focus has it's the in, in the end I think it's one of the only things that helps you get things done like basically it's you can do anything that you want but you can't do everything at least not all at once so you have to figure out a way to start somewhere right so narrow it down to a point where you at least know what the next step is on a project or on a goal because if, if you start to have too many things going on or too many goals it's hard to always keep track of what's next and nothing seems to fit together right at least for me so I ended up having just all these unfinished ideas and unfinished projects and it wasn't until I started to think about narrowing it down that then and it was easier to, to talk about really like with other people and I think when you need help from other people or you want to seek help it helps if you know what you're asking for and for that when I had 10 15 things I wanted to do it's like if someone hey what do you what do you do on the side or what are you up to like I'm not going to list them all off so I would just kind of like give lame answers and I'd be mad at myself but I didn't know like how to explain all the laundry list of things I wanted to do or wanted to get done or wanted to achieve. So that's been something that's really cool too. Once you narrow it down, it's like you can easily start communicating. It sounds like with that long list, you were not only overwhelming yourself, but if you were to reach out to someone else or describe what you were doing on the side, you would quickly overwhelm them also. Right, or the thought of overwhelming them would mean that I wouldn't even talk about it because yeah. you just don't <laughs> you don't want to overwhelm people or if you're doing like a little bit of everything and you are kind of starting out on all these projects but none of them are really I don't know anywhere significant at least in your own mind then you don't necessarily want to talk about it because it's kind of still an idea and it doesn't feel real yet I think if you have a lot of those then it feels even less real so yeah I'd say narrowing things down I mean my, for me it has to be right now I'd want it to be like one <laughs> side project you know some people might be able to do more than one or once you get one going I think that's that's been another interesting thing is like once you narrow something down then you might be able to do some of that other stuff on the list as well but sort of with a different lens in mind so now with one idea it can still apply to a lot of different mediums or projects or other things that ladder up to that but until there was until there's like one overarching goal or idea or mission problem to solve everything felt really disjointed and also for me at least it felt like very non-time sensitive because it's just like oh I'd love to do this whenever I can but because there's no specific end date in mind or anything like that it's everything kept staying on the back burner and in the back of my mind and I really didn't like that feeling it helps once you start talking to other people and figuring out what they're interested in or what they're doing and how you could possibly fit things together. I think that's been one of the coolest things is like just talking to other people who have interests or side projects. Do you think of that process of opening up to working with other people and the recognition that that's the real joy of making things is the process of working with others? Do you think in order to get there, there needs to be some sort of progression past the arrogance of youth? Do you think some of that thinking that you have to do it all yourself is arrogance-based in, in a youthful way? Or is it just naivety? 
Um, yeah, it could be a mix. I mean, I it's probably stubbornness. You don't want to admit that you can't do it all yourself because you know you can. Given the right circumstances or the right time, the right materials, I'm sure everyone could figure out how to do things themselves. But in reality, it's easier and more, like you said, more fulfilling, more rewarding to do it with other people. So for me, I think it was it was more around I didn't I didn't want to ask for help. Not because I needed to do everything myself because I felt like uncomfortable asking for help when I thought I could do everything myself. So to get back to kind of just chronologically your, your story, the worked at the concierge service for about a year and a half. Yeah, a little then, over a year and a half. And then what was what were you thinking about towards the end of that and what was the next step from there? There wasn't one specific thing that led me to want to leave there. I think I just felt like I needed to try something new. I wanted to be working in a different industry. I don't know. I think I got maybe tired of working in like service industry just because I felt like we were getting so many great things done. Just personally, day to day, was feeling like I had sort of exhausted my experience there. So I reached out to a former colleague of my dad's again, <laughs> but it was a woman who worked at MakerBot, the largest 3D printing company. It was pretty much a startup at that point. Like I'd been around a few years, but was only really starting to gain a lot of popularity and notoriety. And 3D printing was becoming this massive buzzword that not many people really knew what it meant, but they'd heard of it. MakerBot was definitely the biggest name in that game. So I went and visited their Brooklyn office as like a networking experience just trying to start to get sort of feelers out there about leaving the concierge job and joining a startup. Like that's what I, in my head, wanted to do. It was like I wanted to go work for a small scrappy company that was doing cool things and where I could wear a lot of hats because I was already wearing a lot of hats in my last job, but I wanted it to be just for, I actually really liked the idea of like working for a physical product, like something that you could specifically sell and talk about because a lot of the things... With the concierge service, it's like it's very secretive. And if you're doing your job well, people don't even know that you're there. Whereas if you go work for a company where you're selling a product or outwardly selling a service or an app or whatever it is, you're supposed to talk about it. And it's like nonstop marketing. And I really like that idea. So what were you, yeah, what, what were you reading during this time? I went and reread a lot of books I loved growing up, like Great Gatsby and To Kill a Mockingbird, a lot of those classics. I can't remember if I reread Walk Two Moons, but I should have if I didn't. I read, so I was going back to that same library that I that I went to as a kid every summer, what and library is it? it's called Westport Library in Westport, Connecticut. It's a great library, and I've even been there in the past month. Still have an active card. So, yeah, I went to the library and, and just checked things out. I actually, I think I have a list saved somewhere of all the books I read during that time period, but it was a mix of other things that were given to me. I mean, I know I read the, like, Yvonne Chouinard's book, Let My People Go Surfing, which would come back to be an important book later on. I didn't know it at the time. He's the founder of Patagonia, and he wrote a book about not only starting a company and starting a business um, almost accidentally, but starting a company that also gives back. And so at that time period, I really was thinking a lot about that and like learning a lot about B Corps, if you will, like companies that give, you know, a percentage of their revenue or percentage of profit back to support the environment or 
the local community or, you know, a variety of different causes. And so I really started to learn more and get exposed to social entrepreneurship at that time. So that's why I wanted to leave the concierge service industry and join something that was more like socially conscious or more environmentally friendly to an extent, but I didn't want it to be a nonprofit for whatever reason. I just knew I didn't want to do that. And then ended up yeah, looking at some at startups and the only other one I ever applied to was Warby Parker and I never heard back, but because um, I applied online and I never, ever followed up. And yeah, that was like a couple months before. And that was one application I sent. So you had the contact at MakerBot. You applied online to Warby Parker into the black hole before I applied online like in the fall never heard and just kind of let it die and then at the beginning of 2013 so a couple years ago I yeah I wound up in the offices of MakerBot but like I said it was just for networking and actually I got really hooked on the idea of working for a venture capital firm so VC and what I loved when I looked into that was the that they got to work with a lot of different companies and entrepreneurs and supporting them. So I started to research all the New York VCs and thought about joining them. But then within a week, I had heard back from MakerBot, like, well, actually, we might have something if you want to apply here. So here's an application if you want to fill it out kind of thing. And um, so I did. And then... Did you fill out an actual application? It was an online application. Okay. Yeah, I had to fill out... Well, I don't know if it was an application. It was, I had to fill out, yeah, I had to fill out something online. And then there's also like a culture test online that you have to take before you can actually apply to a job. Went in and interviewed and heard back like what seemed like forever, but it was really only probably a week, which now I know that's like nothing in job time. What was the position? It was a business development project manager. So naturally I immediately looked up, what does business development mean? And funnily enough, I didn't get a clear answer, really. And I probably still can't give you a clear answer of what it is, even though I ended up working in that for a couple of years, because it can mean so many different things to so many different people. And yeah, I ended up there. And so it's like, yes, would you, you should come join our business development team. And then when I got there, it was really just like one other person, my boss. So that was the team and we were starting the team and we didn't really have desks and we didn't I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing for the first probably couple weeks but started to figure it out and yeah I don't know I ended up that's where I ended up so it wasn't a real like strenuous job hunt and search it was just like I wanted to work for a startup the first one that I applied to I got the job and I was like freaking out and just took it and then I was there (laughs) you say freaking out, do you mean freaking out in like an excited way or freaking out in like a, what do I do? Yeah, more like, what do I do? I How do I tell my old employer? Because I, they didn't, I don't think they knew that I was even looking for a new job. Like I wasn't necessarily open about it. So I felt really guilty and bad about it. Yeah, I remember the moment like going and telling them. And I remember the exit interview and all that. I don't know, I was also excited. But it's definitely a scary feeling. As younger. MakerBot was so many different emotions and activities and vast array of experience rolled up into one. How long were you there for? 
I was at MakerBot for about two and a half years. And in that time period, it went from about 140 people to at one point over 700 and then down to about 500. It went from being an actual startup that was funded by venture investors and then was acquired by a parent company, which was a public company. So it's called Stratasys. And so Stratasys invented the technology called FDM, and that's the type of 3D printing technology that MakerBots use. So it was a kind of a cool full circle story. What's FDM stand for? Fused Deposition Modeling. That's like the technical term for 3D printing? That's one of them. So there's a, there's a couple different ways that you can refer to 3D printing, but with FDM or FFF, it's sometimes called. But it's basically the type that would melt plastic and build it up layer by layer. So it's an additive process. Additive manufacturing is another good term for 3D printing. So it builds objects out of thin layers of plastic and you know sometimes other materials, especially the more expensive. 3D printers can use a variety of different materials. And that's it. You need a computer design file, like a CAD file, to tell the printer what pattern to follow to make the object. And you can really make whatever you want. So while you were at MakeBot, it grew tremendously. And what was that process like coming into... A startup company, still relatively small, and going through that. Yeah. 140 people to 700. I mean, it's when you're living through it, it's hard to pinpoint certain moments or things or shifts. Obviously, things change over time. Um, I mean, a lot of it was related to hiring. So I got to experience a lot in hiring and and helping to build out a team, which I think was really great experience that carries over to any future position and realizing how important it is to find the right people to join the team. Because even if you find someone that fits the bill in terms of their, you know, their resume or their experience, like joining a company that's a fast growing startup, the rules don't really apply. So even if you look good on paper, you have to really be able to feel like that person would be able to to roll with the punches because the job description I felt like me personally, I felt like my job description changed all the time, like month over month or quarter over quarter. So you needed to find people that were also okay with that. So like I said, the term for my initial job there was called project manager. And in the real world, I think a project manager is a pretty well-defined position. You can even get certified in it. You know, it's a whole career path. But at this time, it was more just a catch-all name for someone who just does stuff. (laughs) Kind of ironically similar to the concierge job. That experience was probably directly applicable. It was, and actually my bo- the boss that hired me, was he seemed to get that. I think a lot of people at MakerBot did. They seemed, so even though I was so worried about it for so long, like, how will I be able to explain this to people? They seemed to get it. I would just say it was just a variety of different experiences. There's so many things that you're working on at one time, and I think one of the things I learned about quickly was time management more so than ever when you're working at a company that is I guess like part of this buzzy industry and you're in business development which at the time was just a catch-all for working with any other company is like any sort of third-party relationship usually went through business development so we just had everything inbound and it's so great and so flattering like oh so-and-so wants to work with us and this name wants to work with us and all these companies that you admire and you grow up you know learning about or or using products from or whatever they're all reaching out wanting to work with you and it's a lot of shiny objects out there that everything seems awesome and you want to do it all but you realize more so in retrospect that you can't do it all was it 
the same experience you had on a personal level, but on a company scale? Well, I would say my personal... Of wanting to do so many yeah, things. Yeah. Oh, totally. But I did it on the company scale first. And then it was like after living through that. So oh. we jumped around. After living through this experience where as an entry level employee, I'm just trying to like do as much as, as possible and get everything done. And then you know, hiring people to help take on these jobs. But I didn't feel comfortable or qualified to say like, hey, we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't do that or we should, yeah, we're trying to do everything. And you're still able to get a lot done, but there's also a lot of wasted time, like things that are out of your control that change that you can't plan for, you don't know, or, you know, there's different variables going into partnerships with other, especially with other companies and with our own company changing and the parent company changing things. You just can't plan for everything. So you start to realize you could spend months working on say building up a relationship with a company and then that person gets a new job or that team gets laid off or whatever it is you didn't see it coming and you can't plan for it and you feel like you wasted a lot of time so you try and suck up like what was at least what did I learn from that you know to take away his experience so either you don't do that and make the same mistake again or if it's something out of your control like how do you look out for those signs going forward having lived through that as an employee I think really helped me think about my personal endeavors and how to narrow things down sooner you worked at MakerBot for two and a half years. What was that progression like personally towards the end of your time? You know, you start out excited. There's so much happening. It's a startup. It's growing. You're probably sometimes overwhelmed. It was there burnout. Tell me about that. Sure. So there's so, yeah, so much excitement and so much gratitude for the amount of responsibility I was given there. I'd say like as a young employee, as a young, at a young age and definitely started to get frustrated. I would say like, a year and a half into the position in business development, just for a variety of reasons, just changes within the company, changes like on my own, just feeling like I wanted to take on different types of challenges and I didn't feel like what I was doing was aligned with that. So then again, things happen that are sort of out of your control and they came to me with a new position that I never even thought of applying to or wanting to work in, but it was to lead the education division. So, you know, working on strategy and initiatives related to getting MakerBot 3D printers into schools. So that was something that, again, I never thought I would be interested in. I just didn't have any experience in the education market. And I kind of waffled back and forth on like whether or not I should take the role, but I think everyone there, like all my bosses or superiors were like, why would you not? This is an amazing opportunity and it's a step up in terms of like title. And I ended up taking that role and that was at the beginning of 2014. No, sorry, 2015. So a year ago. So I took on the role and I ended up loving it. I loved education. Like I loved it started to get me closer to that feeling of giving back, even though it was still like a for-profit model because we still had to sell the printers it still felt like being able to talk to teachers and students and schools and districts about how they were using 3D printing and what they were doing with them and what they were teaching was really eye-opening to me because I went into it not knowing. Like, I thought I knew so much about 3D printing and, and MakerBot, and I didn't know at all, like, what a school would use it for. So it was pretty cool to see that because we didn't have 3D printers when I was in school, or at least not in, you know, the departments I worked in. So yeah, I found out that schools were using 3D printers most of the time to teach awesome things like entrepreneurship or design thinking, sort of these things that I was interested in and maybe didn't even know how to define them. Like I didn't really know what design thinking was until I took on the education role and found out that schools were using it that way. So then I started looking more into that. 
When you say schools, were they elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, colleges? All of them. Like as young as even pre-K, kindergarten, using 3D printing or 3D printers in some way. Yeah, all the way through college, continuing education, community college. Any educational setting also includes libraries. So my original kids' library, Westport Library, is one of the first libraries to get a MakerBot 3D printer, actually. Like, yeah, did years, you, years and did years you, ago. Were you the one who... No, no, no. They had it before I even worked at MakerBot, I think. Oh. They had one of, like, the, the earlier wooden models. So they had started a makerspace. So that's really that... I found out that that was the growing trend in the educational system, whether it's a school or some sort of nonprofit with educational focus is these places called makerspaces. And it's kind of just a space where they have a lot of different tools and materials that you can make anything. And so a 3D printer is one part of it, but it could also include Legos or robotics pieces and Arduino boards. And I don't know, it could get pretty technical. Now you mentioned earlier that you learn by doing and everyone learns by doing was that something you came into the MakerBot experience with and that was strengthened? Or did you come out the other side of the MakerBot experience with this firm belief in learn by doing? I think I went in with that mindset. I mean, I, I probably didn't use that phrase as much as like now when I was putting together materials or messaging and we started using phrases like learn by doing, I'm realizing like, oh, that's kind of what I've always done I'm sure it never came up that's how I would phrase it myself but yeah I think that's how I always like to dive in and and try things so that's how I was at the concierge service that's how I started off at MakerBot it's like we don't really know where this is going to end up with all these different partnerships but let's just go figure it out and try some stuff and once you do it you figure out okay was that good or not and then you know what to do going forward so as long as you're learning something from it even if it's like technically a failure or something that didn't work out super positively I think as long as it teaches you something going forward you can't really be mad about it right you have to just find the good side so that was happening all along and then with the education I think just so surprisingly to me like this education role helped define a lot of those processes or sort of mindsets that I maybe had already adopted on my own growing up and just didn't feel like I had an outlet for them or I didn't have a definition for them. So I think that was really cool to be able to see not only like is an actual thing, like this is a definable way of thinking about things, but they're actually teaching it in schools now. And I was excited about that because I felt like I didn't learn that kind of stuff in school. I learned it more through outside activities or through family activities. So I think it's pretty cool that schools are opening up the way they're doing things. It sounds like MakerBot was a pretty good experience. You learned a lot. You got to grow professionally and do just a number of different things in a quickly growing organization. What then led to you leaving MakerBot? Yeah, so I really did like that role in education. I was actually laid off. MakerBot. So it's like all these changes that were going on with that. I mean, it's just inevitable when you go from being a startup to a public corporate company, like just the amount of processes and changes and all these things going on. I just felt like for me, it was a really negative environment towards the end, like the last few months. Yeah. And it was all coming to a head. And then it was my birthday again. So my birthday tends to be this like, instead of making New Year's resolutions, usually it's like more around my birthday. I don't necessarily make resolutions, but that's like where I do my personal reflection and like, what am I doing type thing? It's like 
usually my birthday. So just so happens this year, I went to Montana to a conference that I had applied to online. And ironically, I found out about it because of MakerBot. And I'm sure I was only accepted because of MakerBot. Um, Cause you know, I applied like as director of education for MakerBot and they loved that. And they, so yeah, I got to go and it's like a creativity and innovation conference. And I think being there was just the most eye-opening thing to me because I didn't know anyone going into it um, that was going to be there. And I just was surrounded by hundreds of people that were doing things. I don't know how else to put it, but they're like starting their own businesses or they're on nonprofits or, you know, writing movies, making plays, whatever it is. They're just very passionate about what they're doing and they are all excited to talk about it. I'm at this conference and all I kept thinking to myself was what would I even present if I were here? If I came back next year, I want to be able to present something and be proud of it. I came out of that conference just really re-energized and started writing down all these ideas. I made up this whole plan of like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to take a hundred days off. Like I have enough money saved. I'll take a hundred days. And I made a list of all those projects that I was saying, like a list of things that I had just been wanting to do. I was like, I'm just going to power through for a hundred days and get all this stuff done or at least some of it and I literally wrote down I don't know where this is gonna lead but somehow along the way by trying all this stuff I'll figure out what I want to do next and what job I want to have so I was doing that I was thinking about doing that for a few weeks and I'd started applying to other jobs I was looking again into other startups and VC world again I was making it into some final round interviews there and just interviewing like crazy and then one day it didn't matter anymore I was actually laid off my MakerBot. So it's like all these worries and everything I was freaking out about and like, how am I going to get out of here? What am I going to do like this? I just am stuck. It didn't matter anymore. It's funny that you were devising this elaborate escape plan and then little did you know. Yeah, if I had just waited, it would have been figured out for me had I known. But no, I was what? so glad that I had already come up with plans because then I had the wheels in motion. Was there any warning? Yeah, so I'd been there for longer than most people at that point. So I feel like I knew enough people there to know the inner workings. And we'd also had like a massive round of layoffs earlier in the year. So you sort of see the signs coming. So there's definitely warning. I mean, I didn't have like 100% certainty that I would be included, but I knew either way this was happening in the next few weeks. Yeah, so there's somewhat of a warning. What month was it? That was October of 2015. So right after your birthday. Yeah, it was like two, two and a half weeks later. And how did they do it? Well, I was a unique case because I was in jury duty for that day and the day before. Luckily, right across the street. So yeah, my, I mean, my former boss wasn't even there anymore. So I guess I had a new boss for like one day. So I wrote him like, hey, do I have to come in? And he's like, yeah, you should probably should come in. So I think that was like a good telltale sign. Um, this was after jury duty? No, so I had to come in on lunch break of jury duty. And I had to collect my blue folder. That was it on lunch break. I came in and then I met in a little office with a blue folder. And... So, you, so you, were, <laughs> you were on jury duty. Yeah. And does the boss text you or email you? Okay, so... How did you know to go? So how do we know for sure? So this is, yeah, this is good tips if you guys want to know when layoffs are coming. You get an all-hands meeting invite, like, the day or two before. I mean, they had been sending email updates all week about people leaving, so you kind of see that coming. And then you get an invite all hands, 9 a.m. or whatever on X date. It's like a Thursday morning. So I write to this new boss because I didn't know who my boss was even. I was like, you're the new 
head of marketing, like, should I come in? I have jury duty. He's like, yeah, everyone needs to be there if you don't mind coming in. So I came in 9 a.m., whatever. And then that this time they announced in the morning that they were doing layoffs that day. So the last thing they didn't announce it and they just started laying people off and everyone's like, oh my God, are we next? Like what? Like you had no idea what was going on except what you could see through glass windows. So this time they did it in a much more orderly fashion and they just said like, look, through no fault of your own, like we're going to have to be laying off 20% or whatever it was of the company. You know, you'll be called in, blah, blah, blah. Thank you for all your work. They didn't announce this to everyone. They didn't like wrangle people into a room. It's like till the whole company gets told that this is going to be happening that day. And then I went to jury duty, so I didn't watch any of it, which is good because last time that was probably one of the saddest or this is the saddest work day of my life is just watching that happen so yeah I was in jury duty and then of course I had friends like emailing texting me are you Dude, still there are you cry. safe yeah for sure people that leave and people that stay both cry I would say um pretty intense right it's definitely intense is a really good word for it um sad could be another word just somewhat unsettling just like not knowing who's going to be leaving and you don't know like when it's over so you don't know if you're going to be next like I said the second time I wasn't in the office so I wasn't really it was like a, a much different experience but yeah it's definitely this very somber vibe over what time period did they happen two days no it was mostly I mean I don't know all the particulars and they there's always cryptic language involved but they had been announcing some of the higher level positions leaving like the weeks prior like a week prior say but yeah it's mostly within a few hours on the same day yeah so I mean you know something bad's about to happen when you see all these banker boxes being delivered to the office weeks before and like there's talk of folders and it's like you know we've I don't know I'd seen up in the air I'd actually recently rewatched it in preparation just in case but yeah, it's um, it's sad, and I was really glad that I wasn't there the second time around because, like I said, it's just really hard and sad to watch because people say goodbye and they pack up their things, and it's not like you're fired and escorted out in a way that you can't talk. It's sort of like take your time and, you know, take your stuff, take what you need. Thanks so much for all your years here, you know? But you just want to leave. So I even – so I came in on lunch break, and yeah. So you had a feeling. So. I had a feeling, but like my email still worked. That's always a good check. It's like you email people and if you get a bounce back, you know that their email has been turned off. And we were starting to get really tactical, but yeah. So I had been getting texts even from people like, are you safe? Are you not? I'm like, I don't even know. And I almost don't even care, but we'll figure it out. So yeah. The email working is a good sign. It's the telltale sign. But the thing is, it tells you if you're definitely laid off. It doesn't tell you if you just haven't been yet. Because my email is still working. So yeah, coming in. I mean, it's like at that point, obviously I knew if the fact that they even needed me to come in, I pretty much, you know, it was a done deal. So the guy's nice and he, you know, he sits me down and like it's not even his office because he didn't even have an office. But like it's, you know, the former boss's office. And so starts sliding a folder and like starts to say something along the lines of like, you know, this one's especially hard for me. Like, something like that, because I've been there so long. I'm like, you know, just save it. It's cool. Like, don't worry about me. Um, I, d I really didn't want to sit there listening to, like, any sort of, like, speech or sad thing because I was just already thinking ahead to, like, okay, now what do I do? Like, this is – because I, I guess I'd been on this verge of, like, do I quit? 
layoffs are coming. I'm not quite sure. Like if I'll be laid off, even if I'm not, should I still quit? Like just had been running through all these scenarios in my head. And now it was like such a definitive moment that it didn't matter anymore. Like whatever I wanted to happen or whatever I didn't, it didn't matter because it happened. So yeah, that was sort of like where my mind was already thinking. So like I said, even though they say, you know, take your time packing up your things. I, I started doing that. And then I was like, I don't need any of this. Like I had all this stuff and I save a lot of things and I started packing it up and I was like, you know what? No, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave. And I did. And I, I took a company Uber home and started my new career as not having a job. Unemployment began. I think the best part about layoffs. Yeah. Did they get up? Oh, no. I was gonna say the best part about layoffs compared to quitting is that you get a package of. So how much time did they give you? So I was given eight weeks, which is got me basically through the end of 2015. That's almost like it's not exactly, but almost those hundred days that I was already thinking about taking. So. So like the next day. The next you wake up and you're free. Day. And now. now what? The next day I was free. So I finally took an embroidery class that I'd been wanting to take forever. That was like in the middle of the day. So I never could do it. And I did that. Yeah. And I just, I, I, the next few weeks, I just loved being in New York because I was, it was fall time and it was beautiful weather. And I was able to actually go and do those things that I've been wanting to do, whether it's events or conferences just a, a ton of different things are catching up with people over coffee and all these things that I've been putting off. Um, I continued interviewing a lot of places. So that took up a lot of time. So pretty much every day I made sure I had things planned out and I was still staying very active. And what kind of places were you interviewing? Though? The main buckets, I guess, were like other startups based in New York, like venture capital firms. Yeah. So learning a lot more about that industry as a whole. And then, um, other like education technology type roles similar to what I was doing. I toyed with the idea of like consulting for a while. Like I thought about how long or would I want to be a consultant and kind of just ride out and not like fully commit to joining another company, but just, you know, making things work that way. Uh, that way I kind of am working for myself, even though I'm working for other companies, like I could have my own firm. So anyways, I thought about that for a while and I, took my first consulting gig which happened to be based in Hong Kong so that's what brought me to Hong Kong so tell okay so, so <laughs> tell me more so you got laid off around October just this last October yeah so that was recent yeah and then you had eight weeks two months so that kind of brings you through the end of the year yeah but I didn't I didn't take the eight weeks off I st I started my next role within a month How'd you get the consulting gig in Hong Kong? So I'd started talking to this company when I was still at MakerBot over Skype because um, they were in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, I just was like reaching out because I wanted to try something new and they were looking for someone to fill a role in education and it seemed like a good fit. So 
it's a funnier story than that. I found out in the end, I reached out to someone who, because I wanted to work at Kickstarter. I was like thinking about working at Kickstarter and he worked there and he used to work at MakerBot. He's like, no, that's not a good fit, but I do know of a company that might be a great fit that's hiring. And, you know, this isn't a public role, but I think you'd be great for it. And it was this role. It's called, so the company is called 3Doodler. And they invented the 3D printing pen and it launched on Kickstarter. So that's how that was all connected. And I found out later on when I got to Hong Kong and started working for 3Doodler as like a consultant position for the first month or so, that they had actually reached out to that same guy previously to say like, hey, we would want to talk to this girl from MakerBot. Do you know her? And he's like, no, I don't think she's looking for a job. So it wasn't until I reached out. But like before that, they had already, I guess, tried to recruit me. So and that was you. That was me. That was a cool, like, serendipitous connection that sort of reinforced my decision that this was a good fit. So when did you go to... Hong Kong. Have you ever been to Hong Kong? No. That's like a big... Yeah, I'd never been to Asia. Um, The only time I'd ever been out of the country, aside from Dominican Republic, was that trip to London. So uh, never been to Asia. I honestly had not had a ton of real interest ever. Not that I didn't want to go, but I just never had thought of it as a really like a viable option for me. So I didn't even know. I had to like look up on a map where Hong Kong was in relation to other things and... I picked another place to travel when I was there. I was like, if I'm going to be going to Hong Kong, I should at least like explore a little bit in Asia. So I sort of crowdsourced from friends like who had been there. Like, where else would you go if you could go anywhere? And I decided Taiwan would be an also cool place to check out. Luckily, one of the things, one of the random things I had applied to in my application period online was like this thing called Hacker Paradise, which is an on like a a traveling community of digital nomads, meaning people that can work remotely and from anywhere. And they were currently stationed in Taiwan and Taipei. So the timing worked out that they accepted me to be part of that program. And um, I was also going to be in Asia around the same time. So I went and worked in Hong Kong for about three, three and a half weeks. And then I went to Taipei for almost two weeks. And I had promised my parents I'd be home by Christmas. So I was home the week of Christmas. And that was my first experience in Asia ever. What did you think? I mean, it was amazing. It was a really exhilarating experience to just be... I don't know if it had to do with the fact that it was Asia or just the fact that I needed a change of scene from New York just because I'd been there for a few years and was getting kind of restless. I don't know if it was the previous job or just like the amount of time that I'd been there, but definitely had been thinking about moving or leaving or doing something. So I think getting out and going to a new area and not just for like a weekend or a short trip, but actually starting to immerse myself in a city and like as if I lived there was really awesome because it helped me in narrowing things down and like focusing on things because I didn't have all the, like I was completely off autopilot at that point because I didn't know anyone there and I had to start kind of over and again I knew it was going to be a short period so I was like really active and trying to get the most out of it like I didn't know if I'd ever come back so or at least not in the near future so it was a really really cool experience and I loved the new company I thought that it was almost the exact opposite of where I came from where you know it was just a lot less people less than 20 people and everyone seemed to completely like own what they were doing so there's a lot of autonomy and just this whole like getting things done mentality that I really enjoyed. So yeah, 
I decided to stay at that company and join them full time. So then we basically worked out when I would come back and I, after Christmas, went back to Hong Kong. So now you live and work in Hong Kong. So I feel like a fraud in saying that, but I live and work in Hong Kong for now. It's a temporary thing, so we'll be opening up an office in New York just a little bit later this year. So in the meantime, I was just kind of a remote worker, and they said I could work from anywhere, and I wanted to work from Hong Kong because I liked it, and I thought it would be helpful when starting out there to be working you know, at the headquarters and with you know, getting to know my coworkers and what everyone was doing, so... Um, yeah, luckily they agreed to let me come back and then I just had one month to work remotely from the U S which is why I'm here right now. And I don't have like a place to live in the U S in the meantime. So I'm just kind of hopping around until I go back to Hong Kong in two weeks. So with the being laid off, it sounds like actually was kind of ideal than any other. Right. I mean, it's a complete safety net at that point because I had been, like I said, for a few weeks, I guess, since my birthday, like toying with the idea more seriously. And, you know, I was a little bit afraid of getting laid off at the time. Like, what, you know, how will this appear to people? How will I explain it? And how did you explain it? It's still, it's still hard. I mean, I'm not embarrassed or I don't try and be awkward about it, but I think in a way, I almost think other people will feel awkward if I tell them. And that's more what I worry about is like, I can say, like, I can be comfortable with it all I want, but I don't want to make other people feel like, oh, my gosh, we should feel so sorry for her. Like, what do we say? I'm not quite sure. Because, I mean, maybe for some people they wouldn't want to talk about it or they wouldn't be so... It's like, it's. I don't want to come across as insensitive because I know it's a, a horrible thing for so many people and I don't want to, you know, undermine that because of my particular experience. But for me, what I was glad about you know, with layoffs is that it, it pushed me over the edge, like of something that I was teetering on anyway. And who knows what would have happened if I, like I say right now I would have quit, but who knows? Like I might've stayed even longer or something or you really don't know. And I don't, I never will know. So I think in that regard, like you said, it made me, I didn't, I'm, a, I tend to be an indecisive person. So in this case, they, the decision was made for me and I'm appreciative of that, but I also feel like I was fortunate in that case. That's really good. But it's not... I, th yeah. I think that's really helpful. It definitely made me see things differently and focus and think. So I guess the other big change that's important to notice note is like when I was thinking about leaving or trying to leave, I was applying to a lot of places and interviewing and convincing myself like I just need to get a job. Like any job I could get will be better than this. So I'll take it. And then once I was laid off, I had less pressure on that because I wasn't racing against the clock to leave and to prove something because there's definitely this mentality of like I want to prove something to them like to the old company like I can get out of here kind of I don't know it's like a weird competitive nature I guess in me and now I didn't have to do that anymore because I all of a sudden had more time to figure it out so then it made me personally like think more do I even want these jobs that I've been applying to or do I or do I want to make my own job? Do I want to start from scratch? Like, why am I applying these places just because... And it, a lot of it was because I wanted to just get a new job. It didn't have to do with, like, this is what I want to do next or this is necessarily a good fit or a good growth role for me. It was more just, like, I need anything else. So 
I think that's another thing that helped with layoffs is like I had less pressure to do that. So the decision you finally made was made less out of fear and more out of actual deliberation and decision. Exactly, yeah. The process of narrowing down and, and that realization of the need to focus, the need to collaborate or the benefit of collaboration, did a lot of this happen since leaving or since being laid off? Has a lot of that come yeah. in the past few months? I'd say it all started to fit together around that same time. So it's like birthday, conference in Montana. And when I was there... What was the conference so in Montana? It's called Hatch. And okay. yeah, they've been doing it for 12 years. And it's a yearly conference. They bring together a wide variety of people in different industries. It's just cool to see and hear and listen to people who are very passionate about one particular thing. Even... I think what was so interesting to me is like I wasn't necessarily like, oh my God, I wish I were doing that. But it's more like that's so cool that they are doing that and they care so much about it. What is my version of that? But not not like a jealousy of, of what people are working. I don't know. It's hard to explain. But did, did you figure out what your version was? So I've at least narrowed it down. And that's something that literally like right after the layoffs, like – so that was a Thursday. Friday was embroidery class. Then there's the weekend. Um, and then Monday I had, you know, arranged to meet up with a former colleague for coffee. And um, it was really like on the train ride over that I wrote down like a note about what something that I've been thinking about or wanting to work on. And then in the meeting or, you know, the catch up, whatever we were doing, he was like, so, so he knew, I, he knew about layoffs and everything. So he's like, so what do you want to do? Like, what do you, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I was like, well, it's funny you should ask that because I just wrote a note about this on the subway and it's something I've been thinking about like for years, but never really could fully form it. I basically, I called it like Patagonia for bizware. So going back to that book that I read, that was when I was first exposed to the idea of, um, recycling clothing and basically like closing the loop on manufacturing um not just in the clothing industry but overall but in this case it's like I've admired Patagonia ever since I read that book but I didn't necessarily wear their clothing so why doesn't a company exist that's like that but for more of like professional wear business wear so the term I used was bizware, which I didn't know if that was a real term or not. I don't think it is, but we're inventing it. So if it, people could just start calling it bizware, that would be great. Is that how do you spell bizware? I spell it B-I-Z-W-E-A-R. One word, no space. One word, no space. So it's like activewear is pretty trendy right now. And I so again, I think that there's all these like fashion trends going on that I think are they have to bounce back in the other direction at some point. Like people are getting increasingly casual and I don't think it can get much more casual. Like everything is made out of spandex these days. And I don't think that's a, that's good for the long term when you're trying to look presentable and you're trying to be professional. So I'm someone who personally likes dressing up for work and not in like matching suits way, but like wearing blazers and skirts and things like that. And, but kind of, finding this mix and match look so it's not too fancy and I just have had a really hard time finding clothing that 
goes along with that. And anyone I talked to was sort of agreeing with me. So anyways, that's where the original idea came is like, let's think about making a, a sustainable company that makes, I don't know, instead of outdoor clothing, let's call it indoor clothing. Why not join an already crowded market and figure out a way to, to do it myself? So Question. a few months ago, you left MakerBot. You're now working at Three Doodler in Hong Kong for your day job. On the side, you've narrowed focus into this space of indoor wear or biz wear. And you're here in the United States without a home, traveling around, working remotely for about a month. I mean, it sounds like you've, you've learned quite a bit over the past few years. You went from applying online, really knowing <laughs> very little about how, how all this works, not that long ago, to now kind of navigating to a degree that you got a consulting gig in Hong Kong. It seems like that's you covered a lot of ground there. Yeah, I think one of the most important things through that process was learning the importance of of asking for help and knowing what you need help with and being receptive to people's help because you can't do it all by yourself. So, yeah, in the past when I thought, like, just apply, if I wrote a good enough cover letter, even if I was applying online, I would get a job as opposed to, like, deciding what I wanted to do next or something that, felt like a better fit and then f targeting my approach. Um, that's probably been the biggest shift. If you had advice, a piece of advice to give your younger self or someone who's younger right now, what would it be? I think probably to be confident in what you want, even if that might not be, for forever at least know like what you're looking for right now I had waffled around a lot uh, even like most recently when I was thinking about jobs and applying for them while I was still at MakerBot like I remember reaching out to people and then they'd be like great like I'd love to help out what are you looking to do and I would write back these like pretty lame answers like you know I don't know I just want to do something cool with a cool company I'm willing to do anything like it wasn't very it came across now that I look back at it as like very unconfident and very unsure of myself. And I think that people can read that and it's really hard to help someone who doesn't even know what they want. So the quicker you can narrow it down to, um, like I said, not even if it's like your lifelong goal, but at least like, here's what, here's where I want to be in five years, one year, five months, whatever it is, like pick a time frame and have an idea of what you want by then and then you can start to work backwards and if you can articulate it to people there's a good chance that someone can and will want to help you but if you can't even articulate it yourself then people are going to have a hard time so it works out sometimes like to just hop around and you figure it out along the way like I'm not saying that like I'm glad to have a variety of experiences but I've noticed that things become a lot easier once you once you have a better idea of what you're looking for. Um, so that would be my advice to my former self is like, just, I don't know, come up with something that's a little bit more clearly defined and that you can talk to people about and get feedback on and get help from. I think that's really good advice. And also it comes from a, a, a place of uh, rather than 
textbook or platitudes learned by doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I could have come to that conclusion if I hadn't figured it out by doing it. Um, so I think I was always envious of people that knew exactly what they wanted to do. Like I, I mean, I knew exactly what I wanted to do up until Notre Dame. Like that was the last sort of defined thing in my list of goals was like to go there and to graduate from there. And then once that happened, it was like, now what? I mean, I really remember like writing that as probably my Facebook status or something. It's like, well, now what? Like trying to be funny, but it was really true. It's like nobody tells you what to do after like you've turned in all your homework. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I was lucky with some of the roles I ended up taking and people that definitely were looking out for me and helping me along the way. I'm very appreciative for, but at the end of the day, what I've learned the most is like, just know what you want to do and then just start doing stuff related to it. And it doesn't, you don't like need permission to start doing it. Like if you, you don't, I don't know. That's what, I, that's sort of what I've been figuring out lately is like now with the clothing industry, like I obviously, I don't have a design degree. I don't have, like there's so many things I don't have what what do I have like what skills do I have that can apply to this and how can I be looking at it from a different angle than say someone who went to school for fashion and has you know always wanted to do this it's like um not seeing it I guess as a detriment but seeing instead like the steps that I've already taken that get me closer as opposed to looking at it as starting from scratch because none of us are really starting from scratch like we all have experience in something so sort of rejiggering it towards the direction you want to head in, I think has is, is been helpful way of thinking at it, about it and not so overwhelming anymore. For the final question, if you were to title your autobiography, what would the title be? So one of my probably new favorite phrases in the past few months that I keep coming back to is call, or I'll say this could be the name of the autobiography, is called Love It or Fix It. And it goes along with this idea of like stop complaining about things and like complaining really gets you nowhere and it's just a negative circle. So if you don't love something or if you're unhappy about something, first of all, you have to define what the problem is, whether it's for you or for your company, for an industry, and then you can go about fixing it. So it's like first define something and then uh, fix it or, you know, solve it. So love it or fix it has been, I think a really good phrase for me for the past few months. And I first heard about it at that hatch conference and it just stuck cause it, it hit me at the right time. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of us could probably apply that to our lives. It's like, instead of just complaining or, you know, heading into, uh, a negative reaction to something like take matters in your own hands and figure out a way to to fix it. That's great. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I've been speaking with Allison Vicenzi on Is Now a Good Time. You're so ambitious for a juvenile, but then if you're so smart, tell me why are you still so afraid? the fire what's the hurry about you better cool it off before you burn it out <laughs> <laughs>
got so much to do and only so many hours in a day. But you know that when the truth is told that you can get what you want or you can just get old, you're gonna kick off before you even get halfway through. Ooh, when will you realize Vienna waits?